continuing the series on man, the image of God. And um, in the previous uh, series of teachings, we looked at the will of man and uh, what role the will of man plays in the makeup of man and how we are to function and how our will is in function with regards to um, our lives as believers. And in this uh, section that we want to look at this series, um, we want to look at the conscience of man. Uh, for we have seen in the previous uh, teachings that um, man is made up of various parts and we saw that the will of man is part of the, the inward part of man and then we've also seen that the conscience uh, forms part of man. And so we want to have a look at uh, the conscience today. We want to ask the question, what in fact is our conscience? Um, and yeah, what role does the conscience play in uh, the makeup of man? And uh, we'll open up with the scripture, which is in John chapter 3, beginning at verse 3. And the scripture reads, Jesus answered and said to him, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born again, he cannot see the kingdom of God. Nicodemus said to him, How can a man be born when he is old? Can he enter a second time into his mother's womb and be born? Verse 5, Jesus answered, Most assuredly I say to you, unless one is born of water and the Spirit, he cannot enter the kingdom of God. And so in the New Testament, we are exposed to a whole new bunch of truths that the Old Testament saints never uh, got to see. And one of those truths is that uh, we're born again. Our, our spirits are born again. And here a conversation is taking place between our Lord Jesus and an Old Testament saint, Nicodemus. Um, for he was not yet obviously born again at that time. And he doesn't understand what our Lord is trying to say to him. Because when our Lord says you have to be born again, unless you are born again, you cannot see the kingdom of God. His natural thinking kicks in straight away and he said, well, wait a minute, how is it possible for a person when they're old to once again uh, enter into their mother's womb and be born again? He thinks completely in the natural because he hasn't been exposed to the truth of the fact that in fact man is made up of a spirit being and he has an outward, an inward man and an outward man. Um, these are truths that are hidden uh, by and large to the Old Testament saints. And the reason for that is quite simple, is because they couldn't be born again. Their spirits couldn't be born again. So it was no good God teaching the Old Testament saints about the spirit of man because they couldn't do anything about it. Their spirits couldn't change. But the, under the New Covenant, uh, things do change. And we do get more revelation given to us than the Old Testament saints received. And so, we, in hindsight, we understand what our Lord was talking about, the fact that our Lord was talking about the spirit of man being born again. Nicodemus couldn't get that truth because it hadn't yet been revealed to him. Um, and so that's one of the wins that we have under the New Covenant, is that we get to see a lot more truth than what the Old Testament saints could grasp or understand. We get to understand a lot more. And because we can understand a lot more, um, we can partake of a lot more in the Word of God. And so um, it's very important for us, and that's why we're going through in this series looking at the makeup of man. I've, I've entitled the series Man, the Image of God, because we are created in the image of God. And it's important for us to understand what these various parts of man are, because Unless we do have a, a, a scriptural understanding of the various parts of man, there's a lot of scriptural truths that are in the Bible that will remain hidden from us, and we won't grasp them because we don't apply them. And this is a classic example. Uh, if you don't understand that man is a spirit being and he dwells inside his physical body, well, then you're going to be like Nicodemus, and you're not going to understand what our Lord was talking about when he said you must be born again. But once we do understand that we are spirit beings, we do dwell inside an earthly tent called a physical body, well, then we can now um, understand that particular truth. But it's not only the spirit of man that uh, forms part of the inward man. 
um, because as we've already mentioned, there is such a thing as the, the conscience, there is the will, which we've done the whole series on already, there is the spirit, we've just been looking at that now with Nicodemus and our Lord, and then there is also the mind and the soul of man. And so it's very important for us as uh, believers under the new covenant to look at all of these various parts of man so that we can fully understand what the scripture is saying and it puts a lot of scripture into context for us it helps us to understand more clearly what the writers of the epistles are saying to us if we understand uh, what parts of man that they're referring to uh, quite often and so another scripture we can look at is in 2 corinthians chapter 4 verse 16 we're just wanting to reinforce the fact that we in fact are we have an inward man and we have the outward man and the scripture says in 2 Corinthians 4.16, Therefore we do not lose heart, even though our outward man is perishing, yet the inward man is being renewed day by day. And so the outward man is this physical body that we dwell in, and it's perishing. This physical body that we dwell in is mortal. It is not designed to live uh, for all eternity. And so... God has decreed um, that the average lifespan these days in the Bible, I'm talking about, I'm not talking about out in the world, but in the Bible, the average lifespan uh, at this point in time is between 70 and 80 years that God has given to us to live. Now, um, you know, the, the scientists are a bit baffled because if they, they study the human anatomy and what actually happens is that I think it's every seven years that the, the, the cells in our bodies regenerate and produce new cells. And so, actually speaking, these bodies are programmed to continue living. They, they're not programmed to, to die as they currently do because God has designed them to renew themselves all the time. And uh, right at the outset, when um, Adam and Eve lived and all the way through to Noah's time, um, people were living on the earth. M Methuselah, he's the one who's lived the longest. I think he lived to 983 years or something like that. But it was close to a thousand years that Methuselah lived. He's the, he, 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 he holds the record of living the longest on the earth. Um, and so up until the time of Noah, God allowed mankind in these bodies that we dwell in now to live for nearly a thousand years. And so those bodies were able to keep renewing themselves and keep living for close on a thousand years, but God had decreed that that was the cutoff. Um, after Noah's time, God then changed the, the limit, the age limit, to roughly about 100, oh, in, in fact, not roughly, he said 120 years. And so he allowed man to live for 120 years. Well, it might have been 150, I might be getting my numbers wrong. And then after that, God then changed the numbers again to between 70 and 80 years. And that's where we stand today currently, is that the average lifespan given to, for so, somebody who lives out their full life on the earth, uh, gets to live between 70 and 80 years. Now, there are people that get to live a uh, uh, fair amount longer than that, but not too much longer than that. But the point that I wanted to make here is that these bodies are then going to perish because God has decreed they can only live on these bodies can only exist for so long and then he says that's it I'm not going to let these bodies continue um, they then begin to perish and so our bodies are getting older with each and every passing day nevertheless the scripture says to us yet the inward man is being renewed day by day now that inward man is referring to um, the four parts we spoke about was the spirit of man, the conscience, the will um, um, of man, the, the, those particular aspects of man. But it, it is the spirit of man by and large that is being renewed day by day because our spirits grow stronger with each, should grow stronger with each and every passing day. We're not going to really touch on the spirit of man in today's teaching because we want to concentrate on the conscience of man but that's primarily the two that's the outward man and the inward man and um, the outward man has you know when we look at the outward man um, he has certain organs uh, we have the heart that's inside and we have our brain for argument's sake 
Now those two organs form part of the outward man. Um, all of the organs, all of these parts together form the outward man. But each one of those organs has a specific function. The heart performs one function, and that function is to pump blood through my bloodstream throughout the, the body from the time I, I, I come into the earth until the time I leave. Uh, my brain, on the other hand, is another organ, but it is designed by God to do something else. My brain is the, makes decisions and lets me think rationally and emotionally and things like that. And so these various organs make up, together they make up the whole of the outward man. But each organ has its own specific function and own specific role. You would not expect the heart to begin to uh, reason and think. You would not expect your brain to begin to pump blood. They can't do that because God didn't design those organs to fulfill those roles. Each one fulfills its own role. And so it is with the inward man. We have scripture reveals to us these, very, these four parts of the inward man, um, which is the mind, the, uh, the spirit, the will, and the conscience. And each one of those parts of the inward man together make up the whole inward man. But nevertheless, each part has its own role and its own function. And the one cannot do what the one part of the inward man cannot do what the other part is designed to do. And that's why it's very important for us to understand the various parts, for one thing, and then what their roles are. Because then, again, it does help us to understand a lot of New Testament scripture and even the Old Testament as well, as we understand how man is in fact created by God. And so um, another scripture we can look at is in the Psalm, Psalms 100, Psalm 139, beginning at verse 13. The scripture says, For you formed my inward parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I, I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works, and that my soul knows very well. And so here the, the, the writer of the psalm says to us that God formed his inward parts and that God covered him in his mother's womb. So his inward parts, he's talking about the inward man. And notice that he speaks about inward parts, plural, because we've already mentioned and we'll see more scripture along this line. There, are, there is more than the one part of the inward man. And so that's what their psalmist says, you formed my inward parts. And God is the one who forms our inward parts. Then he goes on to say, you covered me in my mother's womb. So when he, the writer is saying the Lord covered his inward parts in his mother's womb, what happened is God then covered the inward parts with the outward man, which is the physical body of man, the body that God then intended for his inward man to dwell in for him the rest of his time on the earth. And so... That's really just kind of re-emphasizing to us that we have an inward man and we have an outward man. And the inward man is made up of plural parts. There's more to us on the inward man side than what meets the eye, although none of it meets the eye. Um, and with regards to the inward man, we also have to understand Scripture and how Scripture looks at man. Because we'll see that there is uh, a the part of man is the spirit, I've alluded to it, the spirit of man and the soul. And those two parts can be separated. We'll have a look at that in Scripture. But also within the context of the Scripture, the Scripture would take the soul of man as referring to that, the whole of man. And um, in, it's in 1 Peter 3 verse 20, where the Scripture talks about when Noah and his family were saved, the Scripture says eight souls were saved. And so, in that instance, when the Bible talks about the soul, it's talking about the whole person. Eight people were saved, and it says eight souls were saved. And then the Bible also quite often refers to the inward man as being the heart of man. So the inward man has different titles given to him. We just had a look. He's called the inward man. We just saw that in, in two, 2 Corinthians 4. And uh, in 1 Peter 3, he's called, the, the inward man is called the soul. But he is also referred to as the heart of man. And in 1 Peter 3, 4, the scripture talks about the hidden person of the heart. 
And so, once again, it's the hidden person, the person we don't get to see, because we all see the outward man, we don't see the inward man. But nevertheless, the inward man dwells within this outward man. And he is called in uh, 1 Peter 3, uh, 4, the hidden person of the heart. And so quite often scripture refers to the inward man as being the soul and also the heart. So depending on the context of the scripture, that is uh, how we can interpret scripture along those lines. But uh, each one of the parts of man has a different and a separate function. Um, and we've discussed how the, the, the outward man, and that's kind of the analogy that we would look at to try and identify what the inward man parts are as revealed to us in scripture. We first have a look and see what scripture says to us are parts of these, this inward man. And then we want to now look at the role of each one of those parts. And so the analogy we look at is the human body, the physical body of man, and the fact that there are different parts and each one of those parts has a different role to play. And so the inward man certainly does have the four parts. We've looked at scripture along this line, but we'll look at it again. And uh, the first two parts that we can identify with regards to the inward man is the spirit of man and the soul of man. And then we'll, have, we'll, we'll, we'll expand on that a bit more. And so the scripture we'll look at, well, there are two scriptures I want to look at. The first one we'll look at is 1 Thessalonians, chapter 5, verse 23. Scripture says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so there the Holy Spirit highlights for us Three different parts of man right there. He says, may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless. And so there are three parts identified. The spirit of man, the soul of man, and the body of man. All three of those parts of man are separate parts. Um, the spirit and the soul are not one and the same. The body and the spirit are not one and the same. All three together make up the man, the whole of man. And so your body doesn't go off and do one thing, your spirit goes and does another thing, and your soul goes and does another thing. We as man are one person. Just like the physical body, all of these parts make up the whole body. And so the, in, with regards to the inward man and the outward man, here obviously the body is the outward man, and then there are two separate parts revealed to us in Scripture that make up this inward man, which is the spirit, and the soul. The other scripture we want to look at is in Hebrews chapter 4 verse 12. Scripture says, For the word of God is living and powerful, and sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the division of soul and spirit, and of joints and marrow, and is a discerner of the thoughts and intents of the heart. And so the, the point I wanted to uh, emphasize here is that the Word of God pierces even to the division of soul and spirit. And so we saw in Thessalonians that we, the inward man has a, is, there's a spirit there and there is a soul. And Hebrews shows us that the spirit and the soul can be divided, can be separated, is another translation of that. Um, now, when the scripture says, that the, the, the Word of God is sharper than any two-edged sword, piercing even to the separation of the spirit and the soul. It means that it is really only the Word of God that is able to separate the spirit and the soul of man. They are two different parts of man because the Bible teaches us they can be separated. And if they were the same part, they wouldn't be able to be separated. Because they can be separated. They are two separate parts of man. Nevertheless, God has designed them to operate completely in unison, in that the spirit is not designed to operate without the soul, and the soul is not designed to operate without the spirit. Those, the two, those two parts of our inward man have to function together. And it is only the Word of God that, he, that is sharp enough to be able to do what a, a surgeon scalpel can do in uh, separating the joints and the marrow, God's word is sharp enough to separate man's spirit from man's soul. 
And so the point that we really just wanted to emphasize from these, because we're not concentrating on the spirit or the soul of man in this teaching, is the fact is that man has a spirit and a soul, and the two of them are completely separate parts. Nevertheless, God has designed them to operate and function completely in unison. And it's only God and His Word that can separate the two. Um, that cannot be done otherwise. Now again, this is, uh, you know, spiritual truth that is revealed to us only under the New Covenant. These truths were not revealed to the Old Testament saints. And so there's a lot of truth that is revealed to us under the New Covenant, which helps us to now understand uh, Scripture in, in uh, uh, an more exact light, for, for want of a better uh, word. Um, then we have, look, we've gone through the whole series of teachings on the will of man, but the scriptures we want to just highlight in today's teaching with regards to the will of man um, is in John 1, chapter 12, uh, sorry, in the Gospel of John, chapter 1, beginning at verse 12. Scripture says, But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, to those who believe in his name, who were born, not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor of the will of man, but of God. And then 2 Peter 1.21 says, For prophecy never came by the will of man, but holy men of God spoke as they were moved by the Holy Spirit. And then Luke 22.42 uh, scripture says, Saying, Father, if it is your will, take this cup away from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And so, you know, very clearly in scripture here, uh, we see that there is another part of man, and that is the will of man. And the will of man is a separate part. Again, it forms part of the whole of the inward man, and the whole of the inward man dwells within the whole of the outward man, and all of it makes up the whole man. But nevertheless, these are separate parts. And so the will of man is a separate part of the inward man. And uh, very clearly we see in these scriptures that there is such a thing as the will of man. And the will of man, uh, we've got done the whole series of teachings already on the, on the will of man, so we're not going to go into any kind of depth here. But the will of man is separate from the spirit and the soul. It is, it has, it's another part of the inward man. It has its own function completely. And uh, you can go back on the teachings that we've done on the will of man to understand that concept. And so those are uh, three parts of the inward man that we've seen so far, which is the spirit, the soul, and the will. And the soul, we, we're not touching that in any kind of depth today, but under, when you study scripture, the soul very often refers to our understanding, our minds. Um, but it can also refer to the whole of man, as I mentioned earlier, as the, the, the heart of man can refer to the whole of man and not just the spirit of man. Um, but we now come to the fourth part of man, which we're wanting to really discuss in this series of teachings, which is our conscience. And so a couple of scriptures I want to read on with regards to that is in Acts chapter 24, verse 16. Scripture says, this being, this is the Apostle Paul writing, he says, this being so, I myself always strive to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. And so Paul, if you, if you look at his writings, it, it, it's, um, it's really in the New Covenant, the New Testament, that we get to hear about the conscience for the very first time. The conscience is never mentioned once in the Old Testament. Uh, it's just not a subject that was broached by God. Um, and so we see the conscience mentioned for the very first time under the New Covenant. Um, and we'll look at the, the scripture along that line. In fact, it's in the Gospels that we see, John's Gospel, that we see the conscience mentioned for the very first time. But if you go look at Paul's writings um, and you study his, his lifestyle, time and again, Paul would refer to his conscience and he would live by his conscience. And here in this passage, he says, he always strives to have a conscience without offense toward God and men. So Paul had learnt a truth about the conscience of man. Now again, as I say, under the old covenant, never mentioned. No saint spoke about 
living, uh, striving to have a conscience without offense toward God and man. They just didn't understand that because it was not a truth that was revealed to the Old Testament saints. But under the New Covenant, we, we find out about a conscience. We hear about it for the very first time. But we'll see as, as we go through the teaching today that the conscience was always there. It was just never taught. But under the New Covenant, we, we, we receive so much more light. And so because we have so much more light, we're able to do so much more. And we're able to understand Scripture uh, and a lot of different aspects of Scripture in more depth because more light is revealed to us under the New Covenant. And so, as I say, the Apostle Paul learnt that his conscience was very important and he would always live according to his conscience. He followed the guidance of his conscience. Now, there's a, a confused teaching that your conscience and your spirit are one and the same, and they're not. They're two separate parts of man, and that's another thing that we, we need to understand because once you do understand it, then it opens up a whole lot of new truths to you in the scriptures. You don't get confused when you read certain scripture because if you try and put man into one box and think, well, that's it, man is all of that, and then you look at one scripture and the one scripture says you can do this and the other scripture says, and that they seem to contradict each other. But if you realize, okay, that's talking about man's conscience, that's talking about his spirit, uh, then things start to make sense. Scripture starts to be... Uh, make, uh, make more sense to you. Now the fact that the conscience was always there is in the, the scripture where we see the conscience mentioned for the very first time in the Bible which is in John's Gospel chapter 8 verse 9 um, and the scripture says then those who heard it being convicted by their conscience went out one by one beginning with the oldest even to the last and Jesus was left alone and the woman standing in the midst. Now we understand that this is the, the context is that um, classic encounter that took place in the temple where the, these men, whoever they were, had set up this woman for adultery and had then brought her before the Lord and were wanting to stone her. In fact, they, they were trying to set the Lord up because they, they, they knew that the Lord would not condemn her. Um, and so they wanted to be able to say, well, you know, you are transgressing the law of Moses by not condemning her. Because the law of Moses said specifically that they should stone her. And so they were trying to set the Lord up. But the Lord knew something about them that they didn't know. The Lord knew they had a conscience. Um, and so what our Lord did was, it's a famous passage, everybody knows about it. Our Lord, when they brought, and you must understand, when they brought her before the Lord. There was obviously a whole lot of the Lord's disciples around him at that time. He was teaching a whole lot of people there, right there, and they broke in into the, the meeting, and uh, they put this woman in front, and now they start to accuse her. You know, and it, obviously it wasn't a quiet event before the Lord, and, uh, and there was a whole lot of noise going on around this whole issue. So the Lord understands these men have a conscience. And so what he needs to do is he needs their conscience to kick in and start to function. Now the conscience can really only function when we are quiet in our thinking and not all over the place. Because when we're all over the place, then your conscience doesn't really uh, speak out loud enough to, to be able to, to get your attention. So what our Lord does is he just bends down and he starts to write on the ground. And everybody's shouting and screaming and eventually it starts getting quieter and quieter and eventually they're now focusing on what, the, what is this guy writing and what's he doing? Doesn't he realize what we are going on about? And so he quietens them down and when he's quietened them all down and they're now waiting for his response, he now gets up and he makes the, his comment. He said, you know, he who is without, without sin among you, let him cast the first stone. So our Lord does not contradict the law of Moses. He says, no, you can do that. It's quite, uh, quite right, you can do that. But this is the condition you should need in order to do that. If you don't have any sin, then you can cast the first stone. And he goes back down to writing again. So, you know, he doesn't allow any kind of interaction to, to take place between himself and them because he wants their conscience to get a hold of them. And so he goes down to writing here because that kind of just quietens everybody down because now everybody's looking, what's this guy writing on the ground? Um, and they all become quiet again. And what, look at the scripture that says, Then those who heard what he had said, being convicted by their conscience. 
went down one by one, beginning with the oldest even to the last. And so the Lord knew they had a conscience, and the Lord knew what their conscience would do. It would convict them. That's what our conscience does, and we're going to get into it in more depth. But that's what our conscience does. It convicts us of doing the wrong thing, and it excuses us when we do the right thing. Um, now, these people that had brought this uh, woman before the Lord to accuse her of adultery and try and trap the Lord in the whole process were all spiritually dead people. They hadn't yet been born again. Nobody had been born again on the, on the earth. Uh, and so everybody was spiritually dead. So it wasn't their spirits that convicted them. Because their spirits were spiritually dead. Their spirits would allow them to do anything. Um, because they, were, they had the nature of the devil, our Lord said. But their conscience wouldn't. And we're talking about unbelievers now. Um, people who are not, we're talking about people who are not even the Lord's disciples. These are people who are in fact against Jesus. They, they were you know, trying to condemn him himself. That's, that, that was their whole agenda. And yet their conscience convicted them that what they were trying to do was wrong. And so the conscience is not part, it, it is part of the inward man, but it's not part of the spirit of man. And so the conscience has a separate role, separate function, because the, their spirits would not do what their conscience did in this situation. Their spirits would have you know, been quite comfortable with them stoning her, because they were, they were spiritually dead. Their spirits fell after the nature of the devil. That's what the, the spirit of unbelievers are. They, they are spiritually dead. Um, but the conscience, on the other hand, even, even in an unbeliever, still functions as God has designed it to function. And that's the very first time that we see the conscience mentioned in the Bible. It's a very powerful uh, occasion that we see, because the, the, we see just how the conscience actually does work. And it's such a, a beautiful um, part of man that God has created. And that's what Paul realized. And so that's why Paul, the apostle, um, lived in all good conscience all his life. He, 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 you go look at his testimony when he was um, being con, uh, convicted and, and, and put in, um, in judgment before the kings and that. Um, he said, guys, I've lived my life in all good conscience until today. And he, he got uh, hit across the, the face because of saying that, but nevertheless, that was Paul's conviction, is that he would live according to a good conscience. And so it's very important for us to live according to a good conscience. But the point that, I, again, I wanted to get across here is that everybody has a conscience. And it is only under the New Covenant that we really see this part of man being highlighted. And even under the New Covenant, we tend to ignore it. And yet it is such a vital part of our, our inward man. And we need to, all of us, be listening to our conscience and being obedient to our conscience. And so we need to understand what this conscience really is. I mean, how did it come about? Where, where did the conscience of man, and why was it never mentioned under the Old Covenant, even though it was there uh, all the time, but it was never mentioned under the Old Covenant? Why does God now bring it to our attention under the New Covenant and encourage us to live according to our conscience? And um, and follow after as, as, as the Apostle Paul did. And so let's go back. We, if we want to understand the conscience of man, we need to go all the way back to the book of Genesis to look at the, the, this creation of God called man, because that's really what the series is all about. The, the creation of God, man, the image of God, because God has created us to be in His image. And so we, you know, if we get a function, as God intended us to function, we need to understand ourselves. We need to understand what makes us tick. Um, and so, you know, that, because if you understand that your heart needs certain minerals, you give your heart, you partake of those foods. And if you, you understand your brain needs certain minerals, you partake of, and so your brain needs exercise in this area, heart needs exercise in the other area. And so we look after our various body, parts differently and with regards to the inward man we should also look after our various body, uh, inward parts differently and understand how they operate and so the scripture we want to look at is in Genesis chapter 2 verse 7 the scripture says and the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground 
and breathed into his nostrils the breath of life, and man became a living being. And so this is the creation of man. Man became a living being at this time. Now, when the scripture says uh, the Lord God formed man of the dust of the ground, we understand that that is talking about these, uh, the outward man, the physical man. Um, because the physical bodies of man, when we die, our spirits leave and our souls leave these bodies. And these bodies will then drop down and eventually decay and become dust once again. So they come from dust and they will return to dust because they're made of dust. And that's exactly what happened. Man, God formed man of the dust of the ground, talking about the outward man. Then God breathed into that body. The physical body was there, was lifeless at that time. God breathed into that body the breath of life into his nostrils. Now the breath of life that God breathed into the man was in fact the spirit of man. Now God imparted his spirit into that body and Adam became. And he became a, a, a life, the scripture says, a living being. And so when God breathed he, uh, the spirit of man into Adam, um, his soul came into existence at the same time. The will also came into existence at the same time. Um, but the conscience, not yet. And we'll see why I'm saying that. Didn't come into, it, it, it was there, but it didn't, um, didn't play a role at that time. But the moment that the spirit of man and the soul entered into that body, the body came to life and the blood started, the heart started to pump for the very first time and the blood started to flow through the veins of that body for the very first time. And the mind started to experience emotion for the very first time and begin to reason and think for the very first time. And so all of that came about, because don't forget, God is spirit. The, in John's Gospel 4, 24, um, the scripture calls him, our Lord said, God is spirit. That's why he seeks those who will worship him in spirit and in truth. And then in uh, Hebrews 12, 9, the Bible teaches us that God is the father of spirits. And so God is spirit. And so he breathed into Adam uh, his spirit. And we know that the will of man was in place at that time as well, because God commanded Adam not to eat of uh, the tree of the knowledge of the fruit, the fruit of knowledge of good and evil. Um, but they could eat of every other tree in the garden. And so there was will, uh, Adam's will in place because Adam, as an act of his will, could decide, I will obey God in this area or I won't. But that was as an act of uh, Adam's will that he could do that. So at that time, the, the body of man is functioning properly. Um, the spirit of man is residing on the inside of him. His mind is functioning. His soul is operational because he has these emotions. He's thinking. And his will is in place because God tells Adam, this is what you can do, this is what you can't do. And Adam, as an act of his will, free will, decides, I'm going to obey God. And so he doesn't do what God says not to do. Obviously, just the one command, but nevertheless, Adam obeys. So those are the four parts, three of the parts of the, in four parts of man at this stage that are, we see in Scripture. The body of man, the spirit of man, the mind and the will are all functioning and operational when Adam and Eve are created in the Garden of Eden. That's what we see. We don't see the conscience at all. There's no mention of the conscience and there's no aspect to the conscience that we can see needs to be operating. Um, and so why is that? Well, there's another scripture we can look at which just kind of explains why Adam's conscience and Eve's conscience was not operational right from the time that they were created. It only kicked in later. And the scripture we look at is in Genesis chapter 1, verse 31. The scripture says, Then God saw everything that he had made, and indeed it was very good. So the evening and the morning were the sixth day. And so everything that God had made up until that time, and everything God makes, by the way, is always going to be very good. For God is good. And every good and perfect gift comes down from the Father of lights, in whom there is no shadow of turning. And so God can't create evil. He doesn't have that capacity in Him. 
He can only create good. Um, and everything up until that point, and man and Adam and Eve have been created by this time in Scripture. And the Scripture says, and indeed it was very good. And so everything in the garden was very good. Um, everything of God's creation was very good. There was nothing evil there. There was no evil present at all. Everything was perfect. And so when we get to look at the conscience, and we kind of alluded to it already in the, the, the Gospel of John, the conscience is there to prevent us from doing evil. It's there to, to encourage us to do good and to prevent us to do, from doing evil. That's, that's the role of the conscience, by and large. It's like an umpire. It says, that's out of bounds, that's within bounds. You can go down that road, you can't go down that road. Um, but it, the, the evil, it, it always prevents, it always convicts us not to do evil, and it always encourages us to do good. That's all it does. That's what the, that's what the role of the conscience does. It doesn't tell you, um, you know, you, what what uh, what to expect next week or things like that. That's in the realm of the spirit of man. But the conscience is just the umpire of what is. That's evil. Don't do. That's good. Do. That's what the conscience does. Now, in this environment, Adam and Eve don't need a conscience because everything around them is good. There is no evil. So they do not need a conscience that will then say to them, don't do that, um, because there's no evil present. Now you say, okay, but what God said to them, don't eat of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. Now you hear people quote that, and they say, when Adam and Eve partook of that fruit, they call it the poison fruit, or the, or the poison tree almost. Uh, well, in fact, I've heard some people say it's a tree, a poisonous tree with poisonous fruit, and that's what killed Adam and Eve. But that's not the case at all, because God created everything good. And even the tree of the knowledge of good and evil was a good tree, and the fruit was good, because God created it, and God placed it in the midst of the garden. And that was a good tree, and it had good fruit. God just didn't want Adam to partake of that particular fruit. And we'll see now why. He didn't want Adam to partake of that fruit. But nevertheless, um, when Adam and Eve first came on the scene, uh, the conscience was there latent inside the inner man, but it wasn't yet activated. And it didn't need to be activated because, as I say, there was no evil present, present in the Garden of Eden. And so they didn't need a conscience, because that's what we need a conscience for, is to guard us from doing evil and to help us to do good. Um, and so that, that was the status quo. But then something changed. And that is that Satan came on the scene. And Satan comes into the garden. And let's, let's look at the scripture and I'll comment on it. In Genesis chapter 2 verse 17. Our Lord's commandment to, the, to Adam and Eve was, But of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil you shall not eat. For in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. So Satan comes along into the garden and he tempts Eve. Now when he tempts Eve, he deceives her. The Bible tells us in the New Testament that Adam wasn't deceived, Eve was deceived. So what happened? Adam, um, Satan comes to Eve and he, he says, you know, did God say you can't eat of the trees of the fruit of the trees in the garden? So he said, so he's obviously straight away starts questioning, starts distorting. That's what Satan does. So she says, No, God said we can eat of every tree in the garden. We just can't eat of the one tree. Because and she doesn't mention the tree, because and we're not even to, to to touch it, she says. And Satan then comes back with two pieces of information. One is the lie, and the other one is actually truth. Okay, That's what Satan does. He never brings into the church a blatant lie and says, believe this, guys. What he does is he always mixes his lie in with truth because it's poison inside the meat that he does. So he gets the church to, okay, well, there's truth there. Take hold of it, but then there's, there's the lie inside it as well. So 
That's what he does with Eve. He says, no, 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 God, uh, that's not going to happen. God knows you're not going to die. What, what will happen, and I'm paraphrasing, what will happen is that if you partake of that fruit, you're going to become like God. Because you will then have knowledge of good and evil. Okay, So that's a new piece of information that she gets. She goes to Adam. Now, a lot of people say okay, but Satan was right there and he was tempting Eve and Adam was standing next to her while he was tempting. And Adam was listening to the discourse taking place between um, Eve and, and Satan and he just kept quiet. That's not the case at all because the scripture says that God judged Adam because, God said, because you listened to the woman. So... Adam didn't listen to Satan. He gets it secondhand from Eve. So Satan approaches Eve. He uh, tempts her. Now she gets deceived. What's her deception? Her deception is, and I'm just digressing slightly, but we'll, we'll get to it. Her deception is, is that she honestly believes she won't die. She's heard that if she eats of that fruit of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, she's going to die. Because that's what God told Adam, and Adam obviously told Eve. Um, Satan comes and he says, no, it's not going to happen, you won't die. So now she believes uh, Satan, that's the deception. She honestly believes that if she partakes of this fruit, she won't die. She comes to Adam, and she says, you know, this is what I've heard. You told me this, but now I've heard this. And she tells Adam what she'd heard from Satan. Now when Adam hears what she says to him, he hears the new piece of information because God, when God spoke to Adam, he said, you're not to eat. And that's what we just read in the scripture. God speaking, he says, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat. For in the day you eat of it, you shall surely die. And so that's, that's the information that God gave to Adam. Satan had come now and given some other information. And that was that when you partake of that fruit, you will become like God having knowledge of good and evil. So this is something new for Adam to hear. He's not heard that before. God didn't tell him that. Satan tells him that. Now, Adam is not deceived. Adam knows that when Satan said, if you eat the fruit, you're not going to die, um, Adam knows Satan's lying. So he's not deceived about this issue at all. He knows that if he does partake of that fruit, he will die. That's a given. It's, he was not deceived. Eve was. Eve thinks they won't die. But Adam is making a, 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 a rational decision now because he weighs up the consequence. He hears this truth for the very first time that if he partakes of that fruit, he becomes like God because he gets to know good and evil like God does. So now he's got this choice. Does he partake of the fruit so that he can become like God and die at the same time because he knows he's going to die because that he, he's not uh, you know he's not deceived by what uh, Satan had said and he makes the conscious he's, he weighs it up he says okay I'm gonna this is a good deal for me I, I'm, I'm prepared to die spiritually he understood it was a spiritual death he, he knew that they wouldn't just drop down because obviously if they just drop down what's the point of being like God you can't so he knew that they would die spiritually but he's quite prepared to sacrifice life so that he can gain this knowledge and become like God. So he makes a rational choice. Eve, Eve makes an irrational choice because you know she honestly thinks that you know God lied, whereas um, Adam knew that Satan had lied. But in all of this, there's no. Remember what happened when our Lord said to the guys. He who is without sin, let him cast the first stone. Okay? And our Lord goes back to writing. And nobody says anything to the guys, but their conscience convicts him. He says, no, can't do that. We don't, have, we don't see this conscience doing anything here with Adam and Eve. They're about to commit sin, and yet their conscience is silent. They, 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 they're not convicted by their conscience at all. Their conscience does not... Say, ah, uh, ah, uh, ah, uh, don't do it. Because if their conscience was operational at this time, Eve would have felt it as well, as well as Adam. Adam just made a, a, a conscious decision. 
I'm prepared to die that I can get this. Eve makes an une, uh, a, dis, a deceived decision. She wants to get this because she honestly has to believe she's not going to die. So in all of it, both of them are not being convicted by their conscience, even though they are about to commit sin against God. And so their conscience is not operational at that time. So something happens. Well, it happens when they partake of the fruit. Let's look at the scripture. Genesis chapter 3 verse 7. The scripture says, Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked, and they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And so it, it, it's in the eating of the fruit that their eyes were opened. Their consciences were opened for the very first time. They were there, they're latent, but they were not, not functioning. When they partook of that fruit, the eyes of their conscience was opened for the very first time. And now look at this. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves coverings. And so they knew they had done evil for the very first time. Evil was now present in the earth. They had sinned. And their conscience convicted them of their sin. Before, conscience wasn't there. Their eyes were still closed. The eyes of their conscience were still closed. So what opened the eyes of their conscience? It was the fruit itself. The fruit is the, is the, um, the mechanism, not the right word, but it, it was the trigger to opening the eyes of their conscience. For that fruit was the knowledge of the good, of good and evil. And that fruit is what opened the eyes of their conscience. Um, their conscience was always there, but the, their, the eyes of their conscience had been closed up until that time. Now that they partook of the fruit, the eyes of the conscience were open for the very first time. So it wasn't the eating of the fruit that killed their spirits, not at all. That's what some people say, you know, the fruit was poisoned the moment they ate the fruit, their spirits died. No, not at all. It was the act of eating the fruit that killed the spirit. Because the act is to disobey God. Sin is disobedience to God. That's, that's the simplest form of, of, of explaining what sin is. Sin is disobeying God. And so the moment that they willfully disobeyed God, that's, it was that act that was the sinful act, and death comes through sin. And so you have to commit sin first before death. I'm talking about spiritual death now, not physical death. Physical death is a given. God decides. But spiritual death can only come through sin. And so when they committed the sin, that they, they decided they're going to partake of this fruit, that act is what was the sinful act, and that act caused their spirits to die. So it was the sin that caused their spirits to die. Partaking of the fruit caused the eyes of their conscience to be opened, because that's what happened. When they ate the fruit, then the eyes of both of them were opened. So I've alluded to the fact that it was the eyes of their conscience that were opened, but let's just analyze it quickly, because um, it wasn't their physical eyes that were opened at that time. They weren't walking around blind and bashing into trees wherever they went. Not at all. They had, their physical eyes were open all the time. Uh, and their physical eyes remained open afterwards. But there was something else, another set of eyes that opened up at that time. Now people say, okay, well, the eyes of their spirit that opened up. But that's not true. But nevertheless, uh, we do have spiritual eyes. Um, just as we have physical eyes that's look, that we see into this realm, with the eyes of our spirit, we can see into the realm of the spirit. Now that only happens if and when God allows that to happen. Let's have a look at a scripture that highlights that truth for us, which is in 2 Kings chapter 6, verse 17. And the scripture says, And Elisha prayed and said, Lord, I pray, open his eyes that he may see. Then the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, and he saw. And behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elisha. And so what had happened here was that um, the kings of, uh, king of Assyria, I think it was, had uh, come against Elisha because Elisha kept telling the king of Israel where the, the king of Assyria's armies were. And so the king of Assyria said, yeah, somebody must be uh, a spy in our midst because he, uh, he's telling 
the king of Israel, everything about us. And one of his guys said, no, 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 it's not the case. They've got this prophet called Elisha, and he knows whatever you say, even what you say in your own bedchamber. And he tells the king of Israel everything. So he said, okay, well, let's go get this guy Elisha there. So they find out where Elisha is, what city he's in, and so he sends his army to go get one, one man, a prophet, on his own. But he sends a whole army to go get him. And they surround the city um, because now they want to get hold of Elisha. And so Elisha's uh, servant, when he wakes up in the morning, he looks out and he sees, and the whole place is just surrounded by this, arm, this army of, I think they were Assyrians, that were that come after Elisha. So he gets all excited. What are we going to do? And Elisha says to the Lord, Lord, why don't you just open his eyes and let him see? And so Elisha's alluding to his spiritual eyes because Elisha wants his servant to see in the realm of the spirit what Elisha could see. Because Elisha knew that all of these angels were all around him all the time. And so God hears Elisha's prayer and he opens this young man's eyes. And this young man sees in the spirit realm for the very first time. He sees horses and chariots of fire all around. And so he realizes, okay. Now those chariots of fire and horses, they were, and the angels obviously who were in the chariots, were there all the time. They didn't just materialize when the guy, God opened his eyes. They were there. He just could see into the realm of the spirit for the very first time. Why could he do that? Because God opened his eyes. What eyes? His, the eyes of his spirit. And so God allowed him to see into the realm of the spirit um, by opening his spiritual eyes. And so man does have physical eyes, which we see in this realm, and man does have spiritual eyes, which we see in the realm of the spirit. But that only happens if and when God allows that in this life. Obviously, when we depart from this life, we see all the time with our spirits. Um, but then there's also, the Bible alludes to the fact that we have eyes of our understanding. Now, our understanding is our minds, our, our, our brains. And uh, we need to, because what we're trying to do is, which the scripture says very plainly to us, that when Adam and Eve ate of the fruit of the knowledge of good and evil, that their eyes were opened. And they saw that they were naked for the very first time. So we're trying to establish what eyes were opened. So we're saying it could not have been their spiritual, it wasn't their physical eyes, because their physical eyes were open all the time. It could not also have been their spiritual eyes that were opened, because um, we've just now seen that there is such a thing as our spiritual eyes. The reason I say their spiritual eyes weren't opened was because they, before they partook of the fruit, they were spiritually alive. Their spirits were alive to God. But the moment that they partook of their fruit, they died spiritually. Their spirits died and in fact became darkness. The Bible teaches us that we were once darkness, we are now light. And all who are unbelievers are darkness. And so they don't get to see anything in the spirit. The Bible talks about the fact that they stumble. When they stumble, they're talking about in the spirit realm. And so all unbelievers are spiritually blind. And that's what happened to Adam and Eve when they died. They, they actually became blinded spiritually. So they, the eyes of their spirits were not open. That's not the case at all. Then we have what we, the Bible teaches us is the eyes of understanding, which is in Ephesians chapter 1, verse 18. Uh, Paul praying for the church in Ephesus, and he says, he prays that the eyes of your understanding being enlightened, that you may know what is the hope of his calling, what are the riches of the glory of his inheritance in the saints. And so Paul is praying, even these are church members, these are believers, and Paul is still praying that the eyes of their understanding um, would be opened uh, so that they could understand the scriptures. And he, when he says enlightened, means that they could be opened so that they could see more the truth of, of, of the light of God's word. And so all who are in the world, because we can also look at that in 2 Corinthians 4.4, 4, the scripture says, whose minds the God of this age has blinded, who do not believe, lest the light of the gospel of the glory of Christ, who is the image of God, should shine on them. And so every unbeliever out there, their minds are blinded. So they don't see with their minds. Satan blinds their minds straight away. The moment they are in his kingdom, that's the first thing he does is he blinds their minds so that they can't see the truth of the gospel. And even for believers, Paul prays that to God that they, the eyes of their understanding, now the understanding is talking about the mind, um, would be enlightened. 
And so what happened with Adam and Eve when they partook of the fruit, it wasn't the eyes of the understanding that were enlightened because they became part of Satan's realm straight away because he, be he became the God of this world and he blinded their minds straight away. So they didn't get to, the eyes of their spirit, their physical eyes didn't get open, their spiritual eyes didn't get open, and the eyes of the understanding wasn't open. All spirit and eyes of understanding, they go backwards. They, they lose sight in those areas. But nevertheless, their eyes are open when they partake of the fruit. And so what eyes were opened? Well, um, it is the eyes of their, of their conscience. Just another scripture just to show us that everybody who's in, in Satan's kingdoms in darkness is in Colossians 1 verse 13. The scripture says, He, talking about God our Father, has delivered us from the power of darkness and conveyed us into the kingdom of the Son of His love. And so those who are unbelievers are in darkness and believers are in light. And so when, Satan, when Adam and Eve bowed their knee to Satan, he became the God of this world. When they committed sin, they entered into darkness. So they didn't see uh, spiritually or with their understanding at that time. But nevertheless, they did see with what? With the eyes of their conscience um, was in, in fact uh, open for the very first time. Let's go back and just look at the scripture again in Genesis chapter 3 beginning in verse 6. Scripture says, So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food, and that it was pleasant to the eyes, now this is all spiritual, uh, her, her natural eyes they're talking about, um, pleasant to the eyes, and a tree desirable to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. She also gave to her husband with her, and he ate. Then the eyes of both of them were opened, and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves um, coverings. And so very clearly, the scripture is, it's in the eating of that fruit that the eyes of their conscience were opened for the very first time. Because the moment that they partook of the fruit, they knew they had sinned. They, they, that's what they knew. Uh, they knew they were naked. And when God wanted to speak to them, their natural reaction was, hide. Why? Because they were afraid. Because why? Because they had sinned against God. And so everything kept them. The conscience now convicted them for the very first time. And that's where the conscience of man comes in. And that is what his conscience is all about. Um, Genesis chapter 2, verse 8. Scripture says, The Lord God planted a garden eastward in Eden, and there he put the man whom he had formed. And out of the ground... The Lord for God made every tree grow that is pleasant to the sight and good for food. The tree of life was also in the midst of the garden and the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. And so every tree was, was good. God had made all things good. And so it wasn't the fruit that was poisonous. It wasn't the fruit that killed Adam and Eve. It was the act that killed Adam and Eve. But the fruit did something good for them. Because what did it do? It opened the eyes of their conscience. And God knew that that's what they were going to need from there on out. Um, their conscience needed to come into existence because now they had been exposed to evil for the very first time. And from there on out, they needed to know the difference between good and evil. They needed to know to shun evil and do good. And their conscience is what woke up. And their conscience was given to them and the rest of mankind for the rest of time. Man's conscience is given to him for that express purpose. To know to shun evil and to do good. That's what it, our conscience is given to us by God for. And it was given to Adam and Eve uh, when they were created. It just that uh, it was dormant. Their conscience lay, uh, was lying dormant because they didn't need it. However, when Adam and Eve then transgressed God's one and only commandment, then they died spiritually, and the eyes of their conscience was opened for the very first time. They knew now, their conscience convicted them. You guys have sinned. And from there on out, man's conscience has been given to him by God um, to teach us and guide us to shun evil and to do good. And... 
the, the, the other scripture we can look at is in Genesis chapter 3, verse 22. Scripture says, Then the Lord God said, Behold, the man has become like us, one of us, to know good and evil. And now lest he put out his hand and take of the tree of life and eat and live forever. God then obviously banished Adam and Eve from the Garden of Eden because God could not have Adam and Eve partaking of the fruit of the tree of life because they would have lived forever. Now, that tree of the fruit of the, the fruit of the tree of life is for our physical bodies. That'll we we will partake of that tree in our resurrected bodies. Um, because had Adam and Eve partake, partaken of that fruit, their, their spirits wouldn't have come to life again, not at all, because they were still they were still remain spiritually dead. But what would have happened is that their physical bodies then would not have been able to die. Um, their physical bodies would have become immortal, and that's why God had to remove them from the garden so that they couldn't get access to that fruit of the tree of life. Um, we will partake of it when our Lord returns because we will have resurrected bodies and our bodies will need to partake of that so that they can uh, be immortal. But uh, that is the, the life that our Lord was saying, they'll live forever. Uh, their bodies would have become immortal and God couldn't allow that to happen. Um, and so that is really what uh, the, the conscience is given to man about, is that it's given to us to let us know what is evil and what is good, shun evil, do good. And that's why what the conscience of Adam and Eve was not around before they committed sin to convict them and say, don't do it, because conscience was dormant. When they partook of the fruit, the eyes of their conscience was open for the very first time. And since that time, uh, mankind's eyes of their conscience has always been open. Now we're going to go into the teaching in a bit more depth along that line because in fact, it's only at a certain point in the life of men that the eyes of the conscience is opened. It's not from birth. The eyes of the conscience is not open from birth. But we'll have a look at that in more, in more depth. But we wanted to go all the way back to Adam and Eve and see how God created them um, and where the conscience actually came about and when did it kick in. And we saw that uh, it, in the scriptures we've looked at today, is that the eyes of the conscience were opened once they partook of that fruit. And God always knew that it was going to happen. That was always part of God's plan of salvation. We looked at uh, um, that aspect when we discussed the, the will of man, that uh, God's plan of salvation was working right from this, before everything started. God, that was God's plan. But nevertheless, and so that is why that fruit was available to man, because God knew Adam and Eve were going to sin. And God knew that that fruit would, what it would do to man in that it would open up their eyes, the eyes of their conscience. And they would once, for the very first time, know the difference between good and evil. And we're going to close the teaching on that particular point today. Amen.